Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the expectation of war in Europe as Russia masses more forces surrounding Ukraine in the north from Belarus, the east in the Donbass, and the south on the Black Sea, and the west from Transnistria. Since this is a crisis of Putin's making, we'll look into the role of Russia's military-industrial complex and the hawkish generals driving the charge to recapture important military manufacturing plants as the Russian military runs out of Ukrainian-manufactured jet engines and shipbuilding components. Joining us from Moscow is Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, a defense analyst, columnist, and journalist who previously served as senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences and published a regular column on defense in the English-language new local daily, the Moscow Times. After more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhauer joined the staff of Novaya Gazeta, the last independent newspaper left in Russia that is not a mouthpiece for Putin. Then, with voting rights reform dead in the water due to Senators Manchin and Cinema joining with Republicans engaged in massive voter suppression, we'll explore what options Democrats have to get out the vote in November as they face a rigged playing field and need to motivate a demoralized base. Joining us is Astra Taylor, a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She is the director, most recently, of What is Democracy?, and the author of Democracy May Not Exist But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award-winning The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. The founder of The Debt Collective, a union of debtors, she contributed the foreword to the group's new book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay the Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition, and her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. And we'll discuss her latest article at The Guardian. If the Democrats don't shape up, Biden's presidency will lead to a Trumpian sequel. Then finally, with Florida's Governor DeSantis forming his own election police force to go after non-existent voter fraud, we'll speak with Daniel Ufelder, an attorney based in Florida who served as a law clerk in the White House, the United States Attorney General's Office, the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, and at various law firms in Florida and Washington, D.C. Known widely as the Florida Grim Reaper, he works to draw attention to Governor Ron DeSantis's disastrous mishandling of the COVID pandemic, and his organization, Remove Ron, is dedicated to funding any future Democratic challenger to DeSantis. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, who is a Moscow-based defense analyst, columnist, and journalist. He previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences and published a regular column on defense in the English-language newspaper local daily, The Moscow Times. And after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhauer joined the staff of Novaya Gazeta, 
and his regular his regular commentary on Russia appears in many other local and international publications. And he joins us from Moscow. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Pavel Volgenhaar. Well, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And we spoke the last time there was a confrontation on the Ukrainian border with a massive buildup of uh, Russian military. And at that point, uh, Putin went on full nuclear alert, but he backed down. Is he going to back down this time? Because the feeling, even from the President of the United States, Joe Biden, is more or less fatalistic. They more or less think that Putin is determined to attack Ukraine no matter what. What's the mood in Moscow? Uh, some believe that there's a... I mean, uh, everyone well, understands the situation. Some believe that there may be uh, imminent uh, military action, though uh, maybe more people believe that somehow this will not happen, that this is uh, exercise in brinkmanship, and that... Well, that's kind of rejectionist understanding, because everyone uh, everyone's afraid of a... Uh, a war, well, at least many people, uh, not all maybe, but most, and they hope that this will not somehow dissipate and not happen. Uh, but objectively speaking, yes, the probabilities are not very good, but there is also, yes, the probability that this won't happen. So this is kind of, you know, uh, like an anecdote about the dinosaur and the blonde. You ask the blonde, if you go into the street, will you? What's the probability you meet a dinosaur? And she says, "Well, I'll either meet the dinosaur or I won't." So it's fifty-fifty. <laughs> and so it's right now. Most uh, analysts are kind of, uh, if they're discussing it, it boils down to that it's kind of fifty-fifty. I mean, it either happens or it won't happen. Uh, but that just gets worse because, yes, there's the uh, build-up is happening, and it's getting more and more scary. I mean, uh, that uh, forces that are on the border with Ukraine are not enough. And this is not going to be, of course, localized to Ukraine, so the build-up is becoming more widespread. And... Uh, uh, forces and ships are moving into position. Uh, that's scary, but uh, maybe as it happened last spring, uh, well, the forces assembled, but nothing really much happened. They were just kind of exercises, and that was it. So maybe it will not happen, at least not right now. Uh, but even if it doesn't, uh, the problem has not really solved. So uh, next uh, May, I think we may be in the same situation again. We're going to be kind of balancing on the brink of a possible big war. Well, in response to the deployment of 100,000 troops on Ukraine's border, some of the NATO allies, the UK and the Baltic states and Poland, are sending in Stinger missiles and also Javelin anti-tank missiles. So the response to the Russian build-up is improving Ukraine's chances of defending itself, even though clearly they're completely outmatched by the Russians. So it would seem to me that, in a way, Putin is provoking the other side to 
to get more prepared. So the longer he waits, the more prepared the Ukrainians become, then the more difficult it will be for a military victory over Ukraine. That seems pretty logical, isn't it, Pavel? Oh, yeah, it does. And I believe that if uh, there are most likely advisors and the Russian military who believe that if you want to go, you have to go and not kind of play around. But also they'll be running a kind of a, a lot of different uh, diversions, like, say, the massive de- the deployment of forces from the Far East to Belarus, which is a kind of demonstrative move, most likely to deflect from Russia's real intentions. Uh, the hundreds of kind of Sacramento hundred thousands on the Ukrainian border, they said that's not enough. If really things go to uh, uh, action, I think there'll be maybe two times more involved. Because there can be a movement of forces that are in the Russian, uh, European part of Russia, who can swiftly reinforce uh, forward positions if need be. Uh, and also, of course, there's a massive Russian naval force gathering. Right now, there are two. Uh, the two biggest ships of the Russian Pacific Fleet, uh, cruiser and uh, a big frigate, uh, they took part in uh, exercises in the Gulf of Oman with Iranian and Chinese warships, and then they're moving into the Mediterranean, where the Americans are right now also putting in together a task force uh, with the uh, uh, nuclear aircraft carrier, uh, President Truman, and NATO ships will be there, and there are also Russian ships, uh, warships steaming in from the Baltic and the North Sea, so there'll be also a standoff in the Mediterranean, apparently, and uh, at least six big assault ships are moving in uh, from, uh, they crossed out, first went into the Baltic, uh, there were three there. Three came from the North Fleet. The Swedish military got excited and thought that maybe it's about them, and they reinforced their forces on Gotland Island. That's a big island in the Baltic Sea. But the Russians moved out. Right now, there are no assault ships left in the Baltic. I think Russia is not planning any uh, landings in the Baltic, which is good. Uh, but they most likely are going into the Black Sea where the Russia could gather a big assault fleet and maybe for a big landing somewhere. At the same time, uh, warships, uh, like uh, with missile warships, would be in the Mediterranean to maybe take on uh, the aircraft carrier Truman and its support vessels. So that's going to be kind of a, a big picture a uh, big standoff uh, that may or may not result in a uh, big war. Uh, but it's very scary. Uh, that should be said. Uh, not all. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Pavel Felgenhau, a Moscow-based defense analyst, columnist, and journalist. He previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences and published a regular column on defense in the English-language local daily, the Moscow Times. And after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhau joined the staff of Davai Gazeta, and his regular commentary on Russia appears in many local and international publications. 
and he joins us from Moscow. Well, President Biden got a lot of criticism in his recent press conference for suggesting that Russia may try a minor incursion and into Ukraine, and that infuriated the Ukrainians. My understanding is that there's a buildup of Russian mercenaries now in the Donbass region, and it seems pretty logical if there was any military action, the first priority would be, would it not, Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, for the Russian and their proxies in the Donbass to move south through Maripol and then link up with Crimea, because one of the the downsides of Putin's capture of uh, of Crimea is that the Ukrainians have been cutting off the water supply. So wouldn't that be a priority then to open up that corridor from the Donbass through to Crimea? Because the Ukrainians have uh, cut no, off the. No, I was the... talking about the Russian about the scenario that I heard about that Russia could move officially into the Donbass, move its forces into the Donbass as peacekeepers. Uh, of course, uh, unofficially and de facto, Russia is anyway in control of the rebel kind of controlled Donbass, or the rebel forces. They are fully integrated into the Russian defense system and to the Russian. Uh, supplied by the Russian Defense Ministry and under the command of Russian generals and all the specialists there and commanding officers and staff uh, uh, are Russians uh, 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 on a rotationary basis, Russian military. Uh, But officially, Russia says it's not there, but Russia could move in officially, uh, sort of under the pretext to stop shelling and fighting in the Donbass. So that could be one of the moves, uh, which would kind of put the West into a position. Is this uh, um, uh, incursion uh, important enough to begin uh, kind of deadly uh, punitive sanctions or not? Uh, So that could also happen, maybe. So you don't see them trying to link up the Donbass with Crimea and build a corridor down. No, I mean if that's uh, that could be the first step. I mean if Russia officially moves, say the 150 division, that's a very large uh, division that's standing on the armored division, standing on the Russian side of the border with the Donbass. If it moves it in and says these are now Russian peacekeepers keeping the peace, and the clashes continue. That would be a kind of casus belli. And then the situation could begin unraveling after that. Say. Or maybe not. Again, we are in a kind of uh, situation where we're kind of, we'll be guessing. I mean, if there's going to be a big regional conflict, Russia would want to most likely take over large portions of southern and eastern Ukraine including or maybe cutting Ukraine totally off from the sea, taking over Odessa and Nikolaev and Kherson. And Nikolaev is a, has very... Uh, the, and also Dnepr um, Petrovsk, now it's called Dnepr in Ukraine, and uh, Zaporozhye. Uh, these and Kharkiv, I mean, Russian-speaking, mostly Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine, uh, southern and... Uh, Eastern, where uh, Russia would expect that at least partially the population would be friendly. Uh, that, uh, there are pro-Russian 
uh, Ukrainians, I mean, in Ukraine, quite a lot of them, not, well, maybe, uh, not, not a majority at all, but still maybe 20%, I don't know, and mostly they concentrate in those parts, the Russia most likely go to there, and the, the industrial parts of that region are very important, the, there are uh, very strategically important industrial and military plants there that Russia would maybe want to take intact and integrate. Uh, in Zaporozhye, in Nikolaev, all Russian aircraft carriers were built in Nikolaev, and uh, Russian frigates right now have problems with building frigates because their engines were made in Ukraine and Russia is struggling to produce its own. And Russian aircraft, many Russian aircraft are still flying using Ukrainian engines. The Russian transport heavy and medium planes use Ukrainian engines, and now we're not getting them. That means the Russian um, military transport system is right now in a bit of a crisis because it's using uh, Ukrainian engines and uh, attempts to replace them with Russians have been not very successful. So maybe it makes sense to take over the plants that made those engines. And are they, are the, they in the east, those plants? Uh, the engine plant is in Zaporozhye, Zaporozhye. The mm-hmm. plant that makes engines for Russian frigates uh, is uh, and destroyers, and we're not making any destroyers right now at all, because we don't have engines for them, is in Nikolaev, and also Nikolaev sh- shipbuilding plant was the only big, the biggest plant in Soviet Union. It was building all the aircraft carriers the Soviet Union had produced. And uh, so, and one of the Chinese, one of the last ones was made for the Soviet Union, shipped to China and became the Chinese first aircraft carrier to swim. And so that made, could make some sense. Right. And so I believe if there's going to be a move, it's going to be concentrating in the south and the east. And also, too, the first thing is not to grab a first territory. first thing is to totally defeat the Ukrainian military. Uh, Surround taken prisoner kind of Stalingrad-style operation to defeat the Ukrainian military that is right now standing in the Donbass. That would cause a collapse of government, most likely in Kiev, and then already grant territory. And what about the, the long-term potential of guerrilla warfare and occupying? In other words, it's one thing to defeat, of course, Russia has the capability to defeat the Ukrainian military, but does it have the ability to occupy the country indefinitely? Well, I don't think that Russia would want to go to occupy the entirety of Ukraine. We have a big, very big standing army right now, uh, but not enough to occupy uh, a hostile Ukraine. So that means Russia will try to concentrate on those parts of Ukraine where they, uh, there's more support for Russia. And not to go into those parts of Ukraine, of central and, and western Ukraine, where there could be a kind of a lot of resistance. I see. So then the scenario would be to attack both in the Donbass and then on the Black Sea coast and to take over these factories and secure the Russian-speaking well, areas? Uh, well, militarily, that makes sense to kind of one a very strong uh, uh, 
armored grouping moving out from the uh, Varonish uh, Belgorod place by um, going through Kharkiv or bypassing Kharkiv and and attacking into the southwestern direction, and another uh, pincer going out of Crimea to link up somewhere on the Dnepr and surround and take prisoner uh, the most the best Ukrainian forces that are right now in uh, being engaged in the Donbass. That would be a kind of classical opera, uh, armored operation. The Russian generals have been as students in the Academy of Generals staff a kind of working on a, a Second World War style warfare. Of course, Russia has uh, total superiority in the air on the seas. Also, maybe there would be uh, landings from the air and from the sea, uh, tactical landings to take over strategic points and bridges, and maybe a big air-sea landing somewhere between Odessa and Nikolaev on the Black Sea coast, behind enemy lines. Also linking up with uh, the uh, Transnester Republic, where there's a small Russian garrison, right now surrounded by uh, hostile forces from all sides. So just in closing then, Dr. Papa Falkenhauer, obviously the Russian media has been full of the drumbeat of war, and one worries that Putin has dug a hole for himself. It's going to be difficult for him to back down. How do the Russian people feel about it? I mean, how will they feel about going to war against their brothers in Ukraine? That's not a very popular idea, so that means there'll have to be different uh, propaganda actions to make this uh, a more popular endeavor. And that means, let me see, Russia, first thing it does, they move, we move in these so-called peacekeepers into the Donbass. And if the uh, skirmishes there continue, then we'll be reporting each day that maybe a Russian has been killed and giving their names and everything. So that could build up uh, the momentum for a campaign. It wouldn't be very popular, but if it's swift and victorious, uh, the Russian people will most likely agree. Dr. Papenfelgen, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Okay, thank you. And I've been speaking with Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, a Moscow-based defense analyst, columnist, and journalist. He previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences and published a regular column on defense in the English-language local daily, the Moscow Times. And after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhauer joined the staff of Novaya Gazeta, and his regular commentary on Russia appears in many local and international publications. And he joined us from Moscow. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring what options Democrats have to get out the vote in November as they face a rigged playing field and need to motivate a demoralized base.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Astra Taylor, who's a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She is the director, most recently, of What is Democracy, and the author of Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award-winning The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. And she's the co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union for debtors, and contributed the foreword to the group's new book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. And her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. And she has an article at The Guardian, If the Democrats Don't Shape Up, Biden's Presidency Will Lead to a Trumpian Sequel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Astra Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And one of the problems that we have with the Republicans uh, is that they're bent on voter suppression, and we could be heading into a one-party state in the future, in fact, a permanent kind of Republican tyranny of the minority. It's being locked in now, and it is a bit of a paradox that even the Republican senators like Mitt Romney and Ben Sass, who voted to impeach Trump, and even those like Liz Cheney on the House Select Committee investigating him for the January 6th insurrection, they also support the Republican project of voter suppression. So it seems to me that now that the Senate has failed to get the voter reform bills through because of Senators Manchin and Cinema, won't it require then a massive turnout of Democrats at the end of the year, the elections at the end of the year? Is that the only recourse that Democrats have, a massive turnout because of the structural impediments given that the Republicans have decided they'd rather cheat than compete? Absolutely. And and it's unfortunate. I mean, the problem, I think part of what's so frustrating is this problem didn't begin yesterday. In fact, there's, you know, deeply anti-democratic, and here I mean small d democratic bias baked into our electoral system. And so you, you know, we really do have to take the long view on this. You know, we don't have a presidency who's elected by popular vote. We have an electoral college, which you know, sort of rigs the the rules of the game to favor uh, smaller states who are less populated, tend to be more conservative, more white, more affluent. We see a similar problem with the structure of the Senate itself. You know, every state gets two senators, regardless of population. Again, that skews this, the entire political system towards voters who tend to be older, whiter, more affluent, more rural. So we have deep structural problems uh, with our political system. And and making matters even worse is we have two parties, uh, one of which is completely becoming an anti-small D democracy party, as well as being an anti-Democrat party, the Republicans, who recognize that, you know, sort of progress, like the, the trends in terms of people's values and demographics are not in their favor. So they're, they're realizing they will never be able to win in a majoritarian system. So they are cementing minoritarian rule and proudly. And then we have the you know, big D Democrats who unfortunately... Uh, you know, lock arms sometimes with the Republicans, unless we saw with Manchin and Sinema, you know, and are not invested in in deepening democracy in this country and really extending the franchise and making it easier to vote. I mean, there are things that are just off the table in this country that are sort of status quo in other democracies, like, you know, uh, compulsory voting or just that you're automatically registered to vote. There are so many procedural hurdles in this country that, that make democracy so much harder than it needs to be. And 
but yes, you know, right now what, what, what needs to happen is what has long had to happen, which is the Democrats need a disproportionate turnout, you know, and they need to do all of that work of getting out the vote. It's a waste of hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, there are so many uh, better ways to run an electoral system than what we have, uh, but we're absolutely in an emergency. But in the last election, after four years of reckless ruin from Donald Trump, 84 million Americans voted for Trump in the Republicans, and Biden won by 8 million in the popular vote. But still, a huge number of Republicans, huge number of Americans voted for the Republicans. So wouldn't that indicate that the Democrats have got (laughs) an uphill battle? I mean, with the optics of Biden looking helpless, and he was, after all, you know, one of his assets was that he was a longtime senator and therefore was an inside player. And if he can't even get his own party on board to get some things done, isn't it conceivable that the Republicans could even win without voter suppression? Well, the thing is, the voter suppression is baked into the system. That's what I'm saying, right? Because we have to jump through all these hurdles, you know, registering to vote. Uh, There aren't enough polling stations, especially in uh, poor uh, communities of color. So, I mean, we have a system founded on voter suppression. This country was never meant to be a multiracial democracy. We've had to fight. So, you know, they're just they're just enhancing the voter suppression that's already there. But absolutely, a lot of people, you know, do vote for the Republican Party. Um, and and that's concerning. But you know, equally concerning is the tens of millions of people who do not vote at all, who uh, whether they're just disinterested in politics or so demoralized or so disgusted by the two options, just think it's not worth their time. It's not worth their time to jump through these hurdles, right, to stand in line all day, to miss a day's work. And this is why uh, politicians like AOC have said, you know, Election Day should be a national holiday. Um, you know, uh, this is why the ancient Greeks, you know, who we take the word democracy from, compensated poor people um, uh, for participating in democratic life, you know, knowing that you know, not everyone can afford, again, can afford to, to take that time off. Um, so the the people who don't vote are very, you know, it's very concerning to me. And this is why Democrats, sorry, this is why the Republicans are hell bent on making it more difficult for people to vote, because the folks who do set out elections tend to be more working class, more progressive younger, uh, and people who would probably um, uh, gravitate towards the Democratic Party. I mean, I'm sure a lot of them identify as independents, but they're more progressive than the average voter. Uh, And that's important. And that's why what we need to do strategically, and here I'm including myself in the we of the big D Democrats, is we need to mobilize people who would otherwise sit out the election. Instead of pandering to the, the, you know, the folks on the fence who are going to vote but might vote Republican, might vote Democrat, sort of centrist, you know, who tend to be these mythical swing voters who tend to be more conservative. I'm interested in a, a Democratic Party that tries to mobilize the folks who are inclined to sit this out because they feel, you know, they feel so hopeless because they don't see how politics affects them and how they're, they don't see um, either party as a party that's really going to fight for their interests. But that's the only chance they have, isn't it? When you look at the electoral landscape now, it's clear that the game is rigged against the Democrats, that the only chance they have is to get out people who don't normally and don't often vote. Yeah. Uh, but many mess- but many Democratic Party establishment strategists don't see things that way. They are pushing for the swing voter strategy. They're pushing for, you know, 
sticking with the folks who are likely to turn out instead of expanding the electorate. So there is a strategic debate happening in the Democratic Party about whether whether to go with targeting those swing voters, those Republicans who, you know, might be, uh, you know, pro-vaccine and anti-Trump and bringing them into the fold versus, uh, you know, reaching demobilized folks Mm. and and which which is a strategy of expanding small D democracy. Right. It's bringing more people into political life, which is what we need uh, to fight these bigger fights moving forward beyond the election, you know, this midterm election 2022 and 2024, mm-hmm. but the fight to, to finally make the United States a multiracial, functional, equitable democracy. And again, I'm speaking with Astra Taylor, who's a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She's the director most recently of What is Democracy? and the author of Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award winning The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. She's the co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union of debtors, and contributed to the foreword of the group's new book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. And her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. And she has an article at The Guardian, If the Democrats Don't Shape Up, Biden's Presidency Will Lead to a Trumpian Sequel. Well, indeed, and the Democratic strategists that you're referring to are serial losers. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in how this is going to be accomplished, because yeah. obviously the Republicans are fired up. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, they, they got their leader, their Fuhrer, Trump, and He's delivered for them, and they're happy with him. I mean, he said once that I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Well, he has been proven right. So what is going to inspire the Democrats in spite of bad strategy on the part of Democratic leaders? You know, How do you get people out? How do you get people to recognize that American democracy itself is at stake here? It may be all over. Yeah, I think that that is the question of our time, Ian. I totally agree. I mean, I think you have to draw a sharper distinction between the two parties, right? And and this is what I argued in the Guardian piece you mentioned. You know, the Democrats need to show that they are legibly and uh, bravely fighting for policies that would benefit the working people in this country and that would actually address some of the existential issues we're fe- we're facing as a nation. I mean, we're facing, and you know, they go on and on about how good the economy is. I mean, that's, you know, sh- that that's not the case for most working families. I mean, that's not the case, case for the debtors that I organize with, you know, the, the hundreds of millions of indebted families who are struggling to make ends meet at the end of the month and putting necessities on, on credit cards um, or choosing between a chemotherapy bill and paying rent. So I think you have to show that you're willing to push the envelope. I mean, one, one thing I always find interesting is Democrats say, oh, the, you know, everything's going to be um, absolutely terrible, you know, if the Republicans win the election because they'll do all this horrible stuff. And they, they do. They do horrible stuff because they fight with their gloves off. You know, Donald Trump was not afraid to use executive power. <laughs> Donald Trump was not afraid to push the envelope. And, you know, Mitch McConnell is indeed someone who knows how to manipulate Senate rules, right? And what we need is the similar fighting spirit from the other party. And if they're not going to display it, you know, then they're going to lose. And and woe woe to all of us because the stakes are, are so high. Because I agree that a second presidency, if that's what it could be, would be one that would, would really dramatically curtail uh, the limited democratic protections that we have right now. So one policy we've been pushing for the debt collective is, 
the cancellation of federal student loans. That is something Joe Biden promised to deliver on. And he has the power. So I think it's a, an interesting litmus test for the Democrats, because it's true that, you know, to secure voting rights, you need to pass legislation. You know, you know, you need to work with the Senate to pass the PRO Act, which is the the uh, the bill that would have enhanced uh, labor union uh, and worker protections. But student debt cancellation is a promise he can meet using executive authority. Uh, it just takes a signature. This is not also this is not some executive overreach because Congress granted the president the authority to do this with the Higher Education Act. Uh, and so this is something, you know, he needs to do things like that, that show people, hey, I'm keeping my promise. I'm using the power I have. I'm materially making your lives better. Uh, articulate the ways that it would help everybody, <laughs> that we all need our neighbors to not be suffering uh, economically. No, and I think that would be game-changing. Unfortunately, um, too much of the Democratic Party is just beholden to their corporate donors and want, uh, you know, and just want normal to return. But the problem is that normal is a crisis for most of Americans, and normal is normal's not coming back. You know, we have to face the crisis that we're in. We have to face these raised stakes before it's too late. And how much can uh, President Biden achieve through executive orders? As you mentioned, Trump was quite aggressive with them. And my God, the, <laughs> the latest information we're learning is that there were the draft executive orders towards the end there where Trump was going to mobilize the Pentagon to go out and seize voting machines. So, you know, he... he <laughs> That's yep. just mind-boggling, the aggressive nature or the insane nature of what he was trying to do. But what can Biden do in terms of executive orders? I think he can do quite a lot, can't he, Astra Taylor, in yeah. terms of antitrust actions and, and trying to bring about some economic fairness along with yes. uh, student debt cancellation. Yes, and I recommend everybody read David Dian, who's a brilliant journalist and executive editor at The Prospects. Uh, who's laid out all, all of the things that can be credibly done with executive authority. I mean, certainly can also uh, do things like procurement. So, you know, using the power of the federal government's purchasing power and the wages it sets to raise the floor for, for a, a huge sector of um, the American economy. Um, and also there's, there's power that the agencies, the administrative agencies have. So, for example, you know, and, and so there's all these things you can do just by enforcing laws that are already on the books. You know, one thing of the debt collective we talk a lot about is the fact that Americans um, who um, live under twice the twice the federal poverty line, which is a huge number of people, are actually entitled to free medical care through charity care provisions, uh, except hospitals don't tell patients about this. So that would bring, uh, if, if the IRS is directed to enforce this rule, it would bring free medical care to millions of people. So I just think of all, these late, all this latent power there, all this power that's sitting there unused that a bold and brave administration could wield to send an unmistakable message to the American people, I'm fighting for you. You know, and I, or the other thing I say in that Guardian piece is, if you are going to lose, if you're going to lose to Joe Manson and Christian Cinema, then you should be fighting for something that opens the public imagination, that raises the stakes, and that tells them who the real enemy is, right? The, the, the enemy being the way our political system is beholden to corporate interests, right? So at least if you lose there's some political education going on instead of just people feeling demoralized and you're like, okay, I'm just going to tune out or maybe I'm going to go in and become a Republican. So I think there's definite power that uh, this administration possesses. And let's just hope that they get the memo and become a bolder, braver party uh, before the midterms and certainly before 2024. 
But, you know, ultimately, I think our hope is not in those figures, uh, political figures like Joe Biden having a sudden epiphany. It's really about building the grassroots pressure, pressure from below, mobilizing people to fight for not just the Democrats, but for the for small D democracy, because that's where progress has always come from, from the people. So just in closing, since we live in the era of plutocratic populism, is there any way to mobilize people around real populism and and recognize that the real issue in America is how long are we still a democracy or have we become a plutocracy? Yes, well, I I think it's very important to put that that word plutocratic in front of populism, right? Because what's on sale from the the dem, from the Republicans is faux populism. And in fact, in that Guardian piece, I mentioned a memo that's now circulating in the Republican Party, a strategy memo saying, you know, how the Republicans can become the party of the working class. We know they're never going to stand up for working people. They, they are um, very much a corporate party. So absolutely, what we need to do is meet that with real populism, with progressive populism, and, you know, that is focused on defeating uh, oligarchy and finally for once implementing a real democracy and i think the thing is you know we talk a lot about how polarized people are how divided we are uh, fundamentally i still believe americans have so much in common again struggling to pay their bills struggling to put their kids through college worrying about retirement <laughs> wanting us wanting uh you know health and safety for themselves and their families i think we need to take it down to those basic levels you know and and build build power and movements from the bottom up. I really think, you know, and it's, it's a long, a long game. Um, and so sometimes thinking in terms of electoral cycles, feels like we don't have time to do that. But I'll leave quoting uh, the great labor organizing, Jay McAlevey, who says, you know, there are no shortcuts. If we really want to build power, if we want to be able to keep what shreds of democracy we manage to win, we're going to have to have organized organize people to counter-organize money. So that's the work we also have to do alongside thinking about elections. Well, Astra Taylor, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking with Astra Taylor, a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She is the director most recently of What is Democracy and the author of Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award winning The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. She's the co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union of debtors, and contributed the foreword to the group's new book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay the Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. And her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. And she has an article at The Guardian, If the Democrats don't shape up, Biden's presidency will lead to a Trumpian sequel. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Florida Governor DeSantis' forming his own election police force to go after non-existent voter fraud. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Daniel Ulfelder, who is an attorney based in Florida, who served as a law clerk in the White House, the United States Attorney General's Office, the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, and at various law firms in Florida and Washington, D.C., known widely as the Florida Grim Reaper. 
He works to draw attention to Governor Ron DeSantis' disastrous mishandling of the COVID pandemic, and his organization, Remove Ron, is dedicated to funding any future Democratic challenger to DeSantis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Ufelder. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're known as the Florida Grim Reaper, and everybody, I think, saw the TV pictures of you on the beach dressed as the Grim Reaper trying to alert people that were there, encouraged by the Florida uh, governor, Ron DeSantis, not to wear masks and not to socially distance and not to get vaccinated. And it's just seems to be going from bad to worse now with DeSantis now suggesting that vaccines hurt your fertility. And he talked about how he opposed the idea of nurses getting vaccinated because uh, they may want to have kids later. What is going on with this man? Why is he so... I mean, it's such a strange world we live in, Daniel, where the Republicans, they don't believe in your right to vote, but they believe in your right to infect. Yes, it is. George Orwell would... Uh, have a, a, I could write books about what's going on in Florida. It is so surreal uh, that, yes, as you said, that it was so surreal that a couple of years ago I was uh, at such a loss of what to do that I did travel the state as a Grim Reaper. To, you know, that was almost two years ago. So yeah, Governor DeSantis has a strange belief system, I believe. I believe that ultimately he believes in survival of the fittest, herd immunity, just write it out. I, I think he lacks some basic empathetic characteristics that are required of a leader. And unfortunately in Florida, we, although Florida is a not a red state or a blue state, it's, it's really a purple state in terms of population and voting. He has control of the governor's office, the legislature. He has, there's really no check on his power in Florida. And that, that's the really difficult part that we're dealing with is this man that has uh, very little experience in governing and in leadership and business, having a really unfettered power because of the way uh, the elections have been here. So when he wants to go out and a child, you know, sue cruise lines for requiring vaccinations or where he wants to attack schools that want to require masks or where he wants to attack cities that want to require masks or he wants to change the law you know have a special session there really is no check on him so that that's the really scary part and the even scarier part is this this man which i've been saying for a couple of years he doesn't want to just be reelected governor he wants to be president of the united states and he's a, in his early 40s that's where this is just a stepping stone for him so he's a, a man very uh he loves power. He loves exerting it. He loves attention. He loves riling up his base. And it's it's a dangerous combination here. Well, I think you're being kind, uh, Daniel. I think he's a political thug. I think he's a man without principles and shows real autocratic tendencies, mirroring Donald Trump, perhaps even worse than Donald Trump. I mean, he's the guy that passed laws in Florida where if a bunch of Democrats, more than five or six, protest, you can drive your pickup truck into and kill them, and you get away with it. I mean, what what kind of a man would do something like that? Well, yes, I think I agree with you that he has, like I said, an interest in gaining more power. We, Yeah, I think he has autocratic tendencies. I agree with that, where he, people that challenge him or disagree with him, he does what he can to, to squelch them. And I, I agree 
with you on the, the, the fact that he has those strong autocratic tendencies and and they are they are not checked here in Florida because of the way the politics are. So he is, I agree, if I didn't think he was a dangerous governor, I wouldn't have gone to lengths of dressing as a Grim Reaper. So, I mean, there isn't anyone on this planet that thinks that probably is more concerned about his his power than me. So I don't know what words you want to use. To, I mean, you can use any word you want, really. I'm just telling you my my experience and what I see day to day. And it is it is a fearful to me as a second generation Floridian who's lived all. I love Florida. I mean, Florida gets a really unfortunately gets un, unfair criticism because it's a great state. We have great people. I've lived all over Florida. My fam I'm from Florida. I've lived all over. And, and what this man is doing to our legacy is, is just is just so bad. And every day it's something new, something more. It, it, a lot of these things are stunts, but they're stunts with impact. And th this man has uh, no real concern for, I think, the general population of Florida. And again, I'm speaking with Daniel Ufelder, who's an attorney based in Florida, who served as a law clerk in the White House, the United States Attorney General's Office, the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, and at various law firms in Florida and Washington, D.C., known widely as the Florida Grim Reaper. He works to draw attention to Governor Ron DeSantis' disastrous mishandling of the COVID pandemic, and his organization, Remove Ron, is dedicated to funding any future Democratic challenger to DeSantis. Well, the latest thing that DeSantis has done is he has called for the creation of a special 52-member law enforcement office to investigate, detect, apprehend, and arrest anyone for alleged violations of voting laws. And he said, to ensure that elections are conducted in accordance with the rule of law, I propose an election integrity unit whose sole focus will be to enforce Florida's election laws. This will facilitate the faithful enforcement of election laws and will provide Flor Floridians with the confidence that their vote will matter. Well, there's no evidence or very scant evidence of any voter fraud in Florida, and particularly in the last election. Most critics uh, and observers seem to think that DeSantis is creating this police force as a way to intimidate Democratic voters as opposed to ensure the integrity of their vote. Is anybody buying it? I mean, Purdue, who's running for the governorship in um, Georgia, is saying he wants to implement the same project in Georgia, and also official Republican officials in Arizona are also imitating DeSantis's move. So this is literally a solution in search of a problem, isn't it? Well, I think what you've hit the nail on the head in terms of a lot of people, you know, when I talk to people all over the country about DeSantis and they're like, well, that's a Florida problem. This is not a Florida problem. These 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 things that DeSantis is putting in place, attacking this critical race theory, attacking voting rights, this this election police force. I mean, he, these are test cases that are going to be replicated. If you look at what happened in Virginia, the governor there, he just is taking DeSantis playbook on the mask thing right out of that playbook. This election po police force is it's shocking. I mean, it really is so upsetting to anyone that cares about democracy, First Amendment, abuse of power. And if you look at what Governor DeSantis's history on this, first of all, he was one of the persons that in, in, when he was in Congress in order to get President Trump's some of, you know, kiss up to him, he was one of the ones who tried to do away with the Mueller investigation. 
He, he was a consistent Fox host person on there with conspiracies. Right after the 2020 election, he was one of the first people to go on the news and talk about looking at these electors in these certain states that now we're finding out were a big, big issue. And then on, and look at the time, October 31st, 2021, Roger Stone, who we all have heard of and know, threatened to run against DeSantis as a liberty, as an, a third party candidate if DeSantis didn't conduct an audit of the 2020 election. Well, four days later, Ron DeSantis goes to West Palm Beach, has one of his press conferences, I don't know what they call press conferences, they're really political press conferences at the taxpayer's expense, and releases this, this suggestion that he's going to have a, a, a election in, in, over, under his site, where he oversees it. It's he, the Secretary of State of Florida, who's appointed by the governor. Florida used to have an elected Secretary of State, elected Secretary of Education. This is not necessarily DeSantis, well, this happened before DeSantis, but those were consolidated under the governor's executive branch. So he oversees the Secretary of Education. We've seen what happened there. And now he's got his appointed Secretary of State, who's going to have an office of election crimes and security in that office for appointee by him when there's no problem. The per, another person who was, who's tasked, who was a former U.S. attorney appointed by Trump, was interviewed a couple of days ago and asked, well, this 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 security, whatever you want, this task for this uh, police force, this whatever you want to call it, this election crimes and security uh, office. What 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 would happen in 2020 that precipitated? And he said nothing. There, he said we're going to present to the legislature in this session that there were things that happened in other elections that are a problem. But the, the issue is, and that there wasn't enough funding for that. There is so, that we have. Election crime. There's been elect. We have election crimes on the books that have been there for for a long time, and they can be prosecuted by the state attorney, who's supposed to be independent of the governor, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the U.S. attorney. I mean, there's a plenty of law enforcement mechanisms to police and, and prosecute any election crimes if there are. There is no need for this. He's, he wants to have a 52 person, basically election crimes and security office within his own secretary of state who he appointed with a $5.7 million budget. And th there is no basis for this other than he's trying to kowtow to this conspiracy audit fringe of his party that he knows he has to cow to and also to intimidate people. To, uh, so it, it, it is. And, and the problem, again, goes back again to there's nobody you know, other than, I mean, I've got this remove wrong group where we're attacking him. You've got, you know, certain uh, other Democrats trying to attack him. And you've got the federal courts that he's consistently, he just got, you know, a decision yesterday about attacking professors. So the, the, there are very few checks on some, so this, this, this is ridiculous. I mean, I, I'm, it's not, it's not a legal term. It's, it's, it is, it's unconscionable that that and 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 but the but he's, but when they come back and they say well why we're doing it well the guy one of the guys in charge says well we don't have any evidence of problems in 2020 but we're going to bring some other case studies I mean this this is just an abuse of power that if he gets reelected if he gets to the White House this is the guy you're going to have you're going to have police right, this is a this will be worse than Huey Long I guarantee you so just in the last couple of minutes uh, Daniel Ufelder. DeSantis, of course, is a terrible, disgusting hypocrite because he's already been vaccinated and boosted, but he's had it done 
with him and his family in private. He, he says it's a, he won't say if he's been boosted. Well, yeah, he won't say he's been boosted, but he but we know he got vaccinated in private. Well, we we don't know. I don't with this guy. I don't know anything. I mean, right? He, well, he we, said well, he was vaccinated. He never <laughs> most most leaders would say you know like Biden. Hey, yeah. Here, you know, go on TV and get vaccinated. You know, so he said he was vaccinated. Right. Well, the point is, though, that he's a hypocrite and he's encouraging nice people to risk their health and lives and helping spread this virus out of cynicism and stupidity and whatever. I don't know what the analysis is. But recently, Donald Trump took a dig at him by talk, saying people that have been boosted and won't say they have are gutless. And he was obviously referring to DeSantis. Is there a possibility that since Trump is all about Trump and that's who he cares about, he won't tolerate any competition for the presidency in 2024? So isn't it inevitable that they'll come at each other, these yeah, two? Well, yes. At least? I, that, we removed Ron. We ran the fir- in uh, June. We ran an ad right on point saying, Trump, DeSantis, you, know, you made DeSantis. You put him in office. You're going to let him. Yeah, I've been calling that for seven months. Trump is going to. He's already attacking him. His, his henchman, Roger Stone, is attacked. Yes, th- that's, it's going to be a collision course of epic proportions. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying. Donald Trump made Ron DeSantis. I don't agree with much what Donald Trump says, but when he says Ron DeSantis is gutless, I agree with him 100%. And th- Donald Trump does not want that guy taking any of his spotlight. And he's going to, he ain't going to, you know, they haven't been, you know, they, used, they haven't been together on the same stage for, for at least, I don't know, a long time. So I don't know what Donald Trump's got in his bag of tricks, but Roger Stone is working on it from all his comments. And, you know, Ron DeSantis would be nowhere. Uh, In 2018, he was a nobody. Donald Trump tweeted about him, got him elected. Actually, there was two people that got uh, there's two politicians that uh, I I believe were almost instrumental in ensuring Ron, Ron DeSantis got elected governor, Donald Trump and Matt Gates. So that tells you the kind of man he is. It's true, you know. Well, Daniel Ufelder, I thank you so much for joining us here and giving us a taste of uh, how dangerous this man is. It's hard to believe that there could be people worse than Donald Trump, but I honestly feel this guy is more dangerous than Donald Trump. Well, yes, and I thank you. RemoveRon.org, if you're interested in learning more about what we're doing, you can check us out because we are the sole political committee attacking him day in and day out to preserve our democracy. And again, I'm speaking with Daniel Ulfelder, who's an attorney based in Florida, who served as a law clerk in the White House, the United States Attorney General's Office, the United States Senate, and the United States House of Representatives, and at various law firms in Florida and Washington, D.C., known widely as the Florida Grim Reaper. He works to draw attention to Governor Ron DeSantis' disastrous mishandling of the COVID pandemic, and his organization, Remove Ron, is dedicated to funding any future Democratic challenger to DeSantis. And again, it's removeron.org. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice Saying something to me An angel song about the home of the grave In this land here One more light goes out in the